And what we found was that when you had organisms of equal complexity competing, um, the ones that saw the truth went extinct. They didn't reproduce nearly as fast as those that saw none of the truth and just were tuned to the fitness payoffs. So the result of the simulations showed very, very clearly that seeing the truth would make you extinct. Not seeing the truth and just seeing very uh, a very simplified kind of representation of the fitness payoffs would allow you to outcompete. As soon as you don't require the organism to see the world as one undifferentiated thing, you allow it to carve the world into objects, then once again, fitness clobbers seeing the truth. So what we get again is that objects are simply a convenient way of representing the payoffs that we would get if we act in certain ways. everybody and welcome back to Chasing Consciousness. So today we have the great pleasure of exploring a user interface theory of reality. Now since the invention of the computer, virtual reality theories have been gaining in popularity, uh, often to explain some difficulties around the hard problem of consciousness, which we covered in episode one with Sue Blackmore, if you want to get a full analysis on all of the issues around uh, this question of subjective experiences. But also, uh, they're used to explain non-local anomalies that we see coming out of the, the fields of physics and psychology, like quantum entanglement uh, or out-of-body experiences, both of which we've got devoted episodes on. So do go back and, and check those episodes if you want a really a full breakdown on those two particular phenomena. As we're going to hear today, the vast majority of cognitive scientists believe that, emergence, uh, that consciousness emerges from matter and that virtual reality theories of uh, sort of science fiction or woo-woo as it's often derided in, uh, in science. And one of this podcast's jobs is to look at some of these woo-woo claims and, and help the public to separate the wheat from the chaff so that the open-minded among us can continue exploring the fringes whilst being able to sort of understand where the threshold lies between evidence-based and, and just wishful thinking. So you can imagine my joy when a hugely respective cognitive scientist and user interface theorist who can cut through the polemic and the orthodoxy with calm, respectful, evidence-based argumentation agreed to come on the show. And that is the one and only Donald D. Hoffman. Hoffman's a full professor of cognitive science at the University of California, Irvine, where he studies consciousness, visual perception, and evolutionary psychology using mathematical models and psychophysical experiments. His research subjects include facial attractiveness, the recognition of shape, the perception of motion and color, the evolution of perception, and the mind-body problem. So he really is perfectly placed to comment on how we, we get a sense of reality. Hoffman has received a Distinguished Scientific Award of the American Psychological Association for his early career research into visual perception, the Rustam Roy Award for the Chopra Foundation, and the Trollen Research Award of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. So his, his recognition in this field is, is absolutely clear. He is the author of The Case Against Reality. Um, almost everything we talk about today is, is contained in that book. 
uh, Visual Intelligence, another of his books, and he's also co-authored with Bruce Bennett and Chetan Prakash, Prakash, The Observer Mechanics, uh, the book Observer Mechanics. Now, I have had intuitions that the physical world uh, could be understood more efficiently as a shared representation rather than actual physical space um, since when I first studied computers when I was a teenager. So having the chance to finally speak to someone about this who's such a legend in the field, so well respected, is a massive honor. So I'm so excited. I, I can't wait. Let's go. Dr. Donald Hoffman, welcome to Chasing Consciousness. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm completely and utterly overexcited. My pleasure, and thank you so much for inviting me, Freddie. Uh, it's a great, great honor. Don, I always love to start asking my guests about their earliest conscious reflections, usually starting sort of 9, 10, 11, and on into adolescence. What first big questions can you remember asking when you were were that young and maybe it had some effect on uh on your future choice of career well i had two different strands of thought that went through my head i don't know around 11 or 12. one i was raised in a very fundamentalist christian church kind of setting my dad ended up being a pastor for a while and and so i was all the time being um given thoughts about hell and heaven and 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 spirituality of that kind and then on the other hand i found myself even as maybe 11 year old 12 year old trying to figure out how to build uh robots <laughs> i wanted to build robots and i wanted to make them be able to you know do intelligent things and move around so so i had these these very different attitudes all in one head one is being devoted at, at church and trying to be good and trying to understand the Bible and, and that point of view of things. And the other was this sort of um, opposite kind of thing. Could I make intelligent computers? Could I make them uh, robots that could think and, and work? So I already there was the, the threads of a little competition between these two aspects of my, my training and my, my interest. And that just, through my teens, got more and more intense. I began to realized that these two strands, of, at least from the, the point of view I got at church, were in opposition, right? That uh, this was, there were no such thing as robots and we couldn't make intelligent machines, you needed consciousness and, and, and so forth. So, so I, I went back and forth between AI kinds of ideas and spirituality kinds of ideas, trying to, to meld them together. So that, that shaped a, a lot. But, but I also, there was another aspect between the science and the spirituality. In the spirituality kind of, well, it wasn't spirituality, it was religion. So in, in the religious um, framework that I was raised in, I was told to basically not question and just believe. Whereas in the scientific framework that I was learning in school, I was told not to believe, but to question. And, and so that, that was a, a stark difference. And, 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 even as an 18-year-old, 17-year-old, when I was told not to question, just believe, I, I couldn't do that. I, I, I knew that I, I couldn't accept it at face value, what I was being told. And, and as I learned more about the history of, of religion, 
I, I realize there's there's good reason. I mean, there have been lots of atrocities that have been executed in the name of of, of religion, and you know, if I'm required to just believe what the authorities and religious traditions are saying, that that's that's not acceptable. So so there may be some deep sense in which I should learn to believe even if I can't understand. There may be some good sense of that, but not in the sense of just believing what the authorities, that the physical authorities are telling me. And so so these are the kinds of things that were going through my head. How do I sort this all out? What is good in my religious training? What's what's nonsense? What's good in my science training? Where Where are its limits? Trying to figure this all out. And if it's not too personal, Don, did you have a moment in adolescence where you lost your faith? Because I lost mine just around about 13, also a very, very religious uh, family. Um, and it was interesting that, that I, I, I told my mother, you know, we've always had very philosophical conversations and I told her about this. But my student who I spoke to yesterday, a girl also of 13, she said that she hadn't told her mum and dad yet that she no longer had her faith, but she was going to church anyway. And so we had a lovely philosophical conversation about, you know, that difficult decision of, of, of whether to, 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 to confront that with your parents. Did you lose your faith? Did you keep it quiet? Well, I didn't lose my faith. I just began to lose all sorts of peripheral nonsense that I knew was nonsense. So, so, when I had a pastor, I asked him a, a, a question that was an important intellectual question when I was 17 or 18. And when he flat out told me, don't think about it, just believe, I knew that was nonsense. That, that I knew was complete nonsense. But I didn't pin the entire religion on him. I just pinned that on him. But I did get that so much. When, when I was 13 or 14, the Apollo moon landings were, were f- first happening, right? So I remember 69, you know, Neil Armstrong's stepping on the moon. But in the year or two up leading up to that, I remember uh, a pastor telling us that if God wanted us to go to the moon, he would have given us wings. And I, I, when I heard that, I just, that was so, so much nonsense that there was just no way that I could, you know, swallow it. I, you know, I, I wasn't going to go with that. So I knew that there was nonsense there, but but I wasn't about to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I needed to figure out what, okay, there is a ton of nonsense here. Is there, but there seems to be something interesting here as well, something worthwhile. So I went back and forth and and that process is still going on. So so I, I tend not to be someone who just goes all black and white on something. I really want to look at the subtleties and, and figure it out for myself. So, so I would say that um, most of the stuff that was taught in my religious training, most of it I think is nonsense, but there are some gems. Now yes. let's hit it. Before we introduce your user interface theory of consciousness, we need to first understand Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection in the context of our perception of the outside world. Now, you argue that the evolution of our perception has been geared towards adapting for fitness, i.e. survival, rather than seeing the world as it is in its true form. Can you talk us through this very important precept for your whole theory? Right. So, the theory of evolution by natural selection that Darwin gave us 
is um, a, a beautiful theory. And the way Darwin talked about it and the way it was talked about for, for many decades afterwards is in physicalist terms, right? There are space and time as fundamental entities, the way it's put out. There are organisms that are competing for resources and those that's, that compete better than the others um, that are more fit in the sense that they survive long enough to reproduce more than the others. Their strategies will will and their offspring will go into the next generation with higher probability. So it, the way it's put out typically is a very physicalist um, framework. It, one reason why religious traditions reacted so strongly was because it, it did take physicalism very very seriously, and it said that we evolved from monkeys and monkeys evolved from even lower lower animals. In some sense, that seemed to contradict that we're created in the image of God, the, a, relig a religious point of view, at least a Christian religious point of view. So that's the way it's typically thought of. And in that framework, um, it's assumed that space and time and physical objects like organisms and, and rocks and trees and so forth are real. That, that when we talk about these things and we see these things, we're talking about something that really exists. So how in the world could the theory of evolution of natural selection contradict the idea that we might be seeing the truth? It turns out that John Maynard Smith, a British mathematician who knew game theory and evolution, wedded the two. He took game theory and used it to model evolution. So we have evolutionary game theory. And that took Darwin's idea and put it in a mathematically abstract format. It, it, it abstracted away from all the inessentials like the physical world and the, the particular details about um, you know, space and time and so forth. And it instead talked about strategies, competing strategies and strategies that um, beat other strategies in certain games um, would have a, a greater chance of replicating. So what this means is we can just talk abstractly about fitness as a mathematical concept. So fitness is a function of objective reality. So, and I should be very, very maybe concrete. So, you know, intuitively when we talk about fitness, we talk about, you know, how fit is it for me to eat um, a hot dog versus eating poison ivy, right? So, it, it, you know, there's some advantage to eating a hot dog. It may not be that healthy for me, but it sure beats poison ivy. And if I have a really healthy organic meal, that's even better than the hot dog. So the fitness depends on the world, whatever the world might be. In this case, just for analogy, I'm using hot dogs versus an organic meal versus poison ivy. So there's there's the, the thing in the world. There's the organism that's me eating, right? So eating a hot dog might be okay for me. It might not be great for a bunny rabbit. So a rabbit eating a hot dog might be the wrong thing to do. Um, it might be very unhealthy. So it depends on the organism, its state. If, and the action. So if I'm hungry and I want to eat, then I need to be eating, looking for things like, you know, or, or an organic meal or, or a hot dog. Um, if I'm looking to mate, then a hot dog is no good, right? That it's, 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 it has no fitness payoffs for that action. So, so we, we get this idea from evolutionary theory that fitness is a function, is a mathematical function. And it depends on the organism, like Don Hoffman versus a rabbit versus a cow, its state, um, hungry versus sated, for example, and the action, um, you know, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and mating, the, the, the basics of, um, of life. And so 
we can then look at these functions from some abstract world, whatever that world might be. We don't have to, we don't have to know what the world is. We can just say, let the world be the set with some structure. And then we can actually look at these fitness payoff functions. And so we can then ask a very interesting question. Will evolution by natural selection shape organisms with sensory systems that report the true structure of the world that they're in? What is the probability that evolution by natural selection would shape sensory systems to report truths about objective reality? That's a clean technical question. It turns out, you might think, how could you possibly answer that question? It's a clean mathematical question in evolutionary theory. So it's so we can we can run simulations and we can prove theorems, and and so we've done both with my team and uh, you know, I'm happy to mention you know Chetan Prakash and Manish Singh and I I definitely uh, wanted to come to that next. So if this if you can mention it now, I know that in your lab you've modelled digital simulations to compare these two possibilities. Tell us how you designed that that simulation and and what you set out to to demonstrate. Right. So early on, I set it out with some graduate students of mine, Justin Mark and Brian Marion, and, and, and then later on others as well. And, and the idea, we, we used um, evolutionary game theory first to just write down some mathematical equations to see what would happen. Sorry, a little aside for the listeners, Don. It's the first time this has come up on the show. What do you mean by game theory? Okay, so game theory is... A theory about how to win at games, basically. So if you are playing chess, what, what are different strategies that you might use to, to win at chess? Can you have strategies that would always win or that would lead to ties and, and so forth? So anytime that you have games where you're competing, you can then ask about different strategies. Should I move my you know, queen out there first? You know, what about if I do this kind of gambit with my pawns or whatever it might be? So you can just look at different strategies. Or in interacting with people, do I want to do tit for tat? If, if you do something bad to me, should I just do something bad to you? Or should I forgive you? So there's different strategies that we have in our social interaction. And you can do, you can look at the behavior and social interactions in a game theoretic framework as, as well. That's what you were doing here with these simulations. You were setting up two parallel games, trying to work out if I was set up with all of the abilities to learn exactly how reality was versus if I was set up just to survive, so to mate, to feed, to fight, or to fly away. Exactly. Those were two of the strategies that we looked at. Suppose that we were shaped to see the truth. So we saw maybe not all the truth. Of course, no one thinks we see all the truth, but we saw those aspects of the truth of the world around us that we needed to survive in our niche. That would be one strategy. It is remarkable that us philosophers have survived at all, actually, with the completely useless nature of our pondering. <laughs> yes, well, and when we were just hunter-gatherers, we probably couldn't have done that. But now that we're you know, agrarian, we, we have the time to do that. <laughs> so, so another strategy would be to to not see the truth but to just have you know just get little bits of um, you know perception that sort of trigger the right actions right so we see the things that trigger the right actions and my my graduate advisor at MIT um, I had two wonderful advisors uh, David Marr and, and Whitman Richards David Marr um, 
said, you know, in the case of the fly, the fly probably has very, very little truth. It, it sees, it just has the, these very viewer-centered stimuli that it perceives, and those trigger fly wing actions that make it fly in different directions and, and, and be adaptive. But he says by the time you get to humans, we have been shaped by evolution to actually estimate the true shapes of objects around us and the true distances to them and so forth. So, so he thought that evolution would, would make some very simple creatures not see the truth because it was too, you know, it take too much time and effort and it was just too expensive. But by the time you had, you know, 86 billion neurons in the human brain, you had the wherewithal to see the truth. Hmm. And so we evolution shaped more advanced creatures to see the truth. Well, the nice thing is we don't have to wave our hands. We can run the simulations and we can prove theorems. And the, the, the key, one key idea is this. Evolution does not specify any constraints on what these fitness functions could be. Right. So the payoff, uh, say the fitness payoffs are from zero to 100. Zero means it's going to kill you. 100 means it's the best thing possible for you. So whatever the state of the world is, and for my action and my, you know, my current state, I'll get a fitness value between zero and 100. OK, well, being 5000 meters underwater is a zero for Don Hoffman. That's a zero. That's going to kill me. But for a benthic fish, it's perfect. So you can see that the payoffs really do, they're, they're, they're not absolute. They, they depend on the organism and state and, these, and its action. And it, it's, it's in case after case, what you find is the probability is zero, that a, a, a randomly chosen payoff function will preserve a structure in the world, precisely zero. So in other words, the probability is zero that the payoff functions that govern our evolution, in particular, that govern the evolution of our sensory systems. The probability is zero that those payoff functions even contain information about the structure of the world. So if the payoff functions do not contain information about the structure of the world, then we can't be shaped by those payoff functions to perceive the structure of the world. The, the information isn't there. That makes perfect sense. And so you plug this into your simulations, and who came out on top? Those uh, geared to see things as the see the world as it was, or those to see it for their payoff functions? Well, my student uh, Justin Mark and Brian Marion did these simulations, and Justin in particular did these genetic algorithm simulations. And what we found was that. When you had organisms of equal complexity competing, um, the ones that saw the truth went extinct. They didn't reproduce nearly as fast as those that saw none of the truth and just tuned to the fitness payoffs. So the result of the simulations showed very, very clearly that seeing the truth would make you extinct. Not seeing the truth and just seeing very, uh, a very simplified kind of representation of the fitness payoffs would allow you to outcompete. Now, there's been some recent work, some colleagues at Yale have been trying to do this where you throw thousands of fitness payoffs. Okay, and so this is very interesting new work that we're doing. And I'll just mention that, that what we've done in response. So what they thought was that if you have, in their case, I think 20,000 different payoff functions, then because there were so many different random payoff functions, we wouldn't be tuned to the payoffs, we would just be tuned to the truth. But it turns out that if you allow the organism 
to group those payoff functions into ones that are that are similar. This is called clustering. So you create what we would call our objects, where an object is sort of a a unit that captures a whole bunch of payoff functions that have a similar structure. And and when we do that, then we find again in our simulations very very clear that that you that we get the opposite of the the yell results. As soon as you don't require the organism to see the world as one undifferentiated thing, you allow it to carve the world into objects, then once again, fitness clobbers seeing the truth. So what we get again is that objects are simply a convenient way of representing the payoffs that we would get if we act in certain ways. We tend to think of a fork and a spoon as, a, as an existent thing that would be there even if we didn't perceive. And instead, what evolution is saying is, no, those are interesting data structures that, that you create as a, a way of sort of simplifying and representing all your your payoffs and how to get them, how to act to get payoffs. So so right now is is great. So my colleagues are are you know pushing back. They're they're trying to, but when you when you do this, you realize that as you go deeper. This gives you all sorts of beautiful understandings of what what objects are. They're representations of fitness payoffs, not of truth. So to help us understand this, you've uh, regarding your user interface theory, you give this com- computer analogy for this disconnect between what we perceive and what may actually be there. And the analogy is that this hidden reality is is like the hardware on a computer, so transistors and diodes and silicon chips, etc. And 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 what we perceive is much more like the computer's inter- interface, say your desktop. And the icons on the desktop allow us to use the computer without being distracted uh, by details of its internal structure and operation. Now, in the past, Don, you've said that more than 95% of your cognitive neuroscience colleagues maintain that consciousness emerges from the matter of the brain. And some of them, like our previous guest, Anil Seth, also argue for us being in some kind of disconnect from true reality in a, in a controlled hallucination, as mm-hmm. Seth puts it, characterized exactly by the same evolutionary constrictions you've just described. But they argue this without refuting the mainstream assumption of the primacy of the, of the physical world. This is so important, Don. Can you describe for the listeners how you make the jump from the world not being quite as it seems, uh, as Seth and others will agree because of problems with perception, to our perceptions being completely 100% divorced from reality, uh, like an interface is from its hardware. Now, you've, you've, you've touched on it just, just there, but just to get into more detail, specifically, what evidence do we have to doubt that the world isn't at least close to the way we perceive it? That, that it's actually nothing like it at all, as you argue. Right. So I think the best evidence we have are our best scientific theories, right? So we have to ask, what do our best scientific theories, namely evolution by natural selection and also quantum field theory and, and, and general relativity, what do, what do our best scientific theories tell us about the nature of space and time and physical objects? Are, do, do those theories entail that we should take our objects seriously you know i see a fork there is a fork i see the moon there is the moon and it would exist whether or not i perceived or do our best theories contradict that and i'm not saying that our best theories are the final word 
So I'm not saying that we, I, I'm doing this because I think evolution by natural selection is the true final theory or quantum field theory is the true final theory. Not at all. It, it's just that they're the best theories we have so far. So that's what we have to go with. We have to take what our best theories now entail and, and be very, very serious about that. And so evolution by natural selection tells us very clearly the probability is zero that any sensory system of any organism has ever been shaped to see any aspect of objective reality except for the probabilistic structure. That's it. As you just explained, yeah. That, that, that's right. So, so that's, now again, you could argue that uh, evolutionary theory in its current form is not the final theory. I'm perfectly open to that. Of course, we don't have a better theory. So until we have a better theory, we've got to go with it. So, so that, that's, that's the, we, we can't throw away the, the reason why so many of us, including me, take evolution by natural selection seriously is even if it's incomplete, what it can explain is incredible. It's very, very powerful. Evolutionary psychology is one of the deepest insights into human psychology that you can get. So, so an evolutionary theory just explains so much about the biological world. So, it, you know, even if it's not the final theory, um, we have nothing even close to it to compete with it. Now, in in physics, you know, you might say, well, look, evolution is one thing. Being a cognitive scientist, that the physicist will surely tell you that the moon is there and physical objects are there and space and time is there. I mean, so so I don't care what you say about evolutionary theory. The physicist will will be happy to put you in your place. But the physicists say no such thing. What the physicists are saying, and I'm talking about Nima Arkani Hamed and David Gross and, and, and others, there, there's several who are, who are saying this. Space-time is doomed, is what they're saying. Space-time has been the fundamental framework of physics for centuries, ever since uh, Newton, for at least, possibly before. Physics has been about what happens inside space and time. But our best theories in physics now, quantum field theory wedded with gravity, tell us that space-time cannot be fundamental. And... Let me go into a little bit more on that. Don, perhaps you could you could approach it from the point of view of general relativity, so sort of yeah. the Einstein perspective, and then the quantum field theory approach, because they're, 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 obviously these are two theories that haven't yet been reconciled. So I imagine, let's just take them as two separate ones for now, although the fact that they can't agree is very telling. Yes, now Einstein himself thought that space-time was fundamental, that we could see objective reality. And he and, and his theory of, of gravity, general relativity, is you know the paradigm of classical mechanics. Um, so and Einstein thought he in a 1935 paper he put out uh, this hypothesis that if you could, without disturbing a system, predict with probability one what you would measure when you measured it, you know, then there has to be an element of reality that exists prior to your measurement. So that's so that, that that's a little bit hard to wrap your mind around. So I'll just say one more time. So so Einstein was saying, right, if you know, if I know, if I can predict with probability one what the position of an object is going to be before before looking at it, before interacting with it, and without disturbing it, then can measure the, the position and, and get a number, then that 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 number was there already. The position, the, the object had that position, and, and it was real even before I measured it. And that sort of, when you put it that way, it sort of makes sense. Yeah, if, if, I, if I could predict what I was going to get, and I go and I measure it and I get it, 
and uh, without disturbing system, then it must have been there already. It must have had that position already. Well, it turns out, even though it seems intuitively right, it, it, it's wrong. So we can be very technical about this. There's something called local realism. The idea that, um, that Einstein had that objects have their properties like position and momentum and spin, um, even when they're not observed, they have definite values of those things. So they're real in that sense. And, but they obey Einstein's uh, dictum that nothing influences faster than the speed of light. So that's locality. So local realism says nothing influences faster than the speed of light, but these properties exist even when they're not perceived, like position, momentum, and spin. It turns out we can test local realism. Einstein gave his own ideas about how to test local realism. We've done it, and it turns out local realism is false. It's just false that objects have their positions, momentum, and spin, and, and uh, you know, the, the realism thing, and that they um, are, have local influences. Now, you can try to say, well, it's, it's the locality that's wrong or something like that, not the realism. But, but local realism is dead. But the, the other one is non-contextual realism. And that is realism, again, namely that particles have their properties even when they're not observed. And non-contextuality is the values of those properties don't depend on how we measure them. That's the non-contextuality. And once again, it's been tested, and non-contextual realism is false. So what we have are physicists telling us that realism is false, non-contextual and local realism are false, and that space-time itself is doomed. It's not fundamental reality. Yes. And the best and brightest, like Neymar, Kani Hamed, Juan Maldacena, and their collaborators, they're, they're not just saying this. They're, they're going out and looking for the new structures beyond space-time. So they're spending their careers. Space-time is doomed. So what's the next thing? What's beyond space-time? And they're finding things like something called the cosmological polytope, amplitudehedron, associahedron, and they're finding these deeper structures that have symmetries that you can't see in space and time. They properly predict the patterns of collisions at the Large Hadron Collider, the so-called amplitudes for the various scattering process at the Large Hadron Collider. So they, they, when you let go of space and time, it turns out you can compute these probabilities much more easily. Hundreds of pages of algebra turn into two or three terms that you can easily compute, and you see symmetries in the data that you can't see in space-time. So these cosmological polytopes and amplitudehedron and so forth, they don't know what they're about, but, but there are these mathematical structures that are beyond space-time. They're also beyond quantum theory. There are, with quantum theory, you have these things called Hilbert spaces. And these structures are on beyond Hilbert space. You get Hilbert spaces themselves arising from this. So this is not, this is not the multiverse. This is something different. This is, this is something that transcends quantum theory um, and it, in the sense that it doesn't even involve Hilbert spaces. But what they're showing then is that you can project and get back into space-time and quantum theory. You can get Hilbert spaces as projections of this much deeper structure. So once again, objects in space and space and time themselves and objects in space and time are not fundamental. There's something beyond space and time that's fundamental. And, and whatever space and time are is a projection of this, of this much deeper reality. And so space-time is doomed. It's not fundamental. And before we get on to, to quantum field theory, um, we covered a really ex interesting example of this in episode four on quantum entanglement 
where your collaborator Chris Fields uh, yes. speculated that any two particles capable of changing state simultaneously, so beyond the time and distance required for traditional communication between particles, it, it must not be separate at all in some sense. Now, it sounds very counterintuitive as we're so tied to the classical space and time perceptions and, uh, and, our, and our sense of causation. Now, this isn't the only example coming from modern physics. We've spoken about the very, very large, the cosmological, but also the very, very small, where the data just tells us that the world isn't at all as it seems. What's your sort of overall feeling about these findings? Because there are plenty of examples. Do they support your interpretation of evolution? Or is your claim actually much, much more radical? Yeah, the the, the claim is pretty radical. That in the sense, in the sense that it, it, in, it, if we're looking at space and time itself as uh, as being uh, non-real, I mean, you're talking about realism in that sense as a as a position. That's much, much more radical than any of these interpretations of quantum mechanics. That's right. And, and this is, you know, again, this is the physicists who are saying this, right? They're like Nimar Khani Ahmed, they're saying that space-time is doomed. So they're, they're looking for a much deeper reality. And, and, and I, I agree with them. I think that space-time, from the evolutionary point of view, from the work that I've done with my colleagues in evolution, is merely a data structure. It's, it's, it's a way that we represent fitness payoffs and how to get them. So space-time and physical objects like tables and chairs and forks and spoons and so forth. These, these are not insights into objective reality. These are simple data structures that we've evolved to um, survive long enough to reproduce from an evolutionary point of view. So, so in this respect, our two pillars of modern science, evolutionary theory, evolution by natural selection, and basic physics, quantum field theory, and, and together with, with gravity, tell us that space-time is not fundamental and that our perceptions um, are not giving us an insight into truth, they're giving us something else. These phenomena, more or less, they're just extra nails in the coffin. It's not as if they're pushing us any closer to this position, is it? And that brings us, of course, to your way of explaining this, the user <clears throat> interface network of conscious agents interacting with each other. Now, you argue that our disconnect from the true nature of the world justifies a completely radical rethink of this notion of, of physical space and time, as you've just been describing. What evidence do we have that space and time and physical objects are themselves more like desktop icons? Because you actually argue, probably the most controversial thing of all, that space and time emerge out of the interactions between conscious agents. Can you describe how you arrived at such an extraordinary conclusion? Right. So it, it, the question is, if evolution didn't shape us to see the truth, then, then what did it shape us to see and why? Right. That's I mean, if we're, if we're not seeing the truth, a lot of my colleagues will just have a knee jerk reaction. Look, they'll go, look, if you think that you're not seeing the truth, go stand in front of that train. You'll, you'll see that it is the truth and it'll kill you. So then you, if you disbelieve it, just go stand in front of the train. So they would, they would sort of dismiss this out of hand. If you, if you don't perceive the truth, then you won't be around. You, you, but that's, that's clearly not the case. I mean, that's a misunderstanding of evolution by natural selection. 
And so the question is, is there some kind of metaphor that can sort of help our intuitions? So it's not the theory. And so I don't want to just, the metaphor I'm about to give is not evolutionary theory, but it's a way to understand what evolutionary theory entails. But, the, you know, the, the, the fact is we have the theorems. So if you, if you just want to stick with the facts, it's a theorem that the probability is zero, that sensory systems are shaped to see reality. That's, the, that's just the fact of, our, of evolution by natural selection. But here's an interesting metaphor. Think about if you're playing a, a game of virtual reality. And you put on a headset. And say it's Grand Theft Auto, and it's a multiplayer Grand Theft Auto. And you're playing with someone in China and someone in Europe and so forth. And, and you, you see um, someone driving, a friend of yours driving a, a, a red Camaro. Okay. Well, so you're, you're, you're driving along and you turn your headset over there, you see the red Camaro. Then you turn over there and you no longer see the red Camaro. Now, is there really a red Camaro there? Well, not really. I mean, when you look over there, you get photons being sprayed to your eye from your headset and you create the red Camaro. There's the reality. There's no red Camaro. There's some supercomputer, right? That's that's running this virtual reality game and, and sending electronic signals to your headset and your headset of your friends around the world. But if you looked inside that computer, you wouldn't see any red Camaros in there. You'd see diodes and resistors and voltages and magnetic fields. There's no red Camaros in there. So I create the red Camaro when I look over there and then I delete it. I garbage collect it in a computer science term. I just throw that data structure away. So but, but nevertheless, you might say, well, you know, I've got a steering wheel. And if I use the steering wheel, I, I know how I, if I turn the, steel, the steering wheel to the right, I will go in the way I want to. And if I turn it to the left, I'll go a different way. And by playing with the steering wheel and the gas pedals of this virtual game, I can win the game or lose the game. So I have to take them seriously, right? How, what I do with my steering wheel, I might crash and, and burn and so forth in the game. So I have to take it seriously. But there's no real steering wheel, right? It's, again... I see a steering wheel when I look, and then I delete it. So I create it in the act of looking, and I delete it when I look away. So it's what evolution gave us was a, a virtual reality game headset, uh, effectively. When you play the virtual reality game, you're really toggling voltages in some computer, in this metaphor, right? There's voltages and magnetic fields in some supercomputer. And you could imagine saying, okay, I want to just deal with the truth. So you get some geek in there with, you know, the, the tools to toggle the voltages and and they're they're actually playing with reality but they won't win the game right because when i turn the steering wheel i'm toggling voltages at millions of times per second right without having to know that I, that's what i'm doing I, i'm just turning the steering wheel but what i'm really doing in reality is is millions of operations per second the guy with the you know the probing the voltages and trying to change them but he's never going to do it in, in fast enough he'll lose the game and so that's the idea Evolution gave us a headset, a virtual reality tool that lets us control the reality, even though we're completely ignorant about the nature of that reality. It gave us tools to stay alive, not to see the truth. And those are two separate things. You don't need to see the truth to stay alive. In fact, knowing the truth will make you extinct because, the, again, the guy trying to win the game by toggling the voltages cannot keep up with someone who's got this user interface that lets you toggle millions of them per second without knowing that you're, in fact, doing that. We've got this other element, which is your user interface. 
analogy, quite similar to a sort of social media platform in that sense, that we're all sort of consciousnesses floating around looking to interact. And therefore, we have this perfect idea, which is space-time generated as an interface in which we can communicate. Tell, tell us a little bit about that analogy. Exactly. Most, a lot of that more as we get into the metaverse, right? We'll have this virtual space where we all can go into. But right now on your desktop, right, if you're writing an email and the icon for the email is blue and rectangular and in the middle of your screen, you wouldn't think that the email itself is some blue rectangular thing in the middle of your computer. And anybody who thought that just misses the whole point of the user interface. It's the interface is not there to tell you the truth of your computer, like the diodes and resistors. It's there to hide all that truth and it lets you control it without even knowing what it is. Most of us have no idea what's going on inside of our computer. Um, if we had to toggle voltages to send an email, our friends wouldn't hear from us. So it's, so, so that's what evolution has done. It's given us a user interface um, that lets us interact with reality, whatever that reality might be, and to um, to control it, or, you know, at least to the extent that we need to control it, you, you interact with it without knowing what it is. Now, this is a separate hypothesis about what I think that reality might be, right? So from evolutionary point of view, all I can say is reality is nothing inside space and time. Space and time and physical objects are merely a user interface to whatever that reality might be. And evolutionary theory does not tell us what is beyond space and time, what, what that reality might be. By the way, ne neither does physics. So, so quantum field theory and general relativity entail that space-time is doomed, but they don't tell you what's beyond. So what the physicists are doing is they're, they're being brave. They're saying, okay, well, let's, let's try this structure. And then, then they try to then project it back into space-time and see what happens. So they have to be bold and, and creative and, and, and propose things about what ob objective reality might be beyond space-time. And then you have to project it back into space-time because that's where we can actually make our measurements and test our theories. So that's the same thing. So evolutionary theory tells us that space-time is doomed, that, that it's a user interface, the metaphor of user interface, to a reality beyond. But it doesn't tell me what that reality might be. So it's a separate step. So you might, for example, be happy with the theorem that evolution with natural selection shapes us not to see the truth and go and say, okay, yeah, that's, you're right. You got me. That's the theorem of evolution by natural selection, but then disagree with my next step, which is to say, here's what I propose is beyond space and time, right? This is um, the reality beyond space and time. And my proposal is that it's consciousness. And I try to, to get a mathematical model of this. So that, that somehow there are conscious entities or you know, one consciousness that can be composed into different conscious entities. That's um, a the fundamental reality. And the reason I do that may just be poverty of my imagination. <laughs> Maybe I'm not creative enough to think about something else. But right now, you know, the issue is you know, I have the feeling that I have conscious experiences, like the feeling of a headache, smelling the smell of a rose, feeling love. Um, feeling fear, all these different kinds of conscious experiences. So our attempts to explain how these conscious experiences could derive from the brain, which we can go into the issue, how could brain activity cause our conscious experiences, has, has ended up um, going nowhere. Effectively, we've not been able to explain a single conscious experience. And so 
I began to realize that that failure of explaining our conscious experiences as arising from brain activity was tied to the fact that that space-time is doomed and objects in space-time don't exist when they're not perceived. Many of your colleagues, Don, they, they say that the correlates are strong enough for us to say that with time, you know, Patricia Churchland, Antonio Damasio, you know, the majority of your colleagues, they are convinced. And Antonio Damasio, in our interview, said, it basically, he said that the hard problem has been solved. And I, I tried to, to, to press him on it, but there was, there was very little coming back at me. How, how if you're saying that they can't uh, prove the direct connection, they can't prove that it is caused by neural activity, how can they feel so sure that we will eventually be able to? Well, uh, Patricia Churchland and Antonio Damasio are, are, are brilliant colleagues, um, and, and Patricia is a friend, actually. I know her personally. So when I disagree with them here, I, I, it's out of respect that I disagree with them. But, but my attitude is, is this. Neuroscientists are still physicalists in the old sense of assuming that space, time and, space and time and physical objects are fundamental reality. And also reductionists. So, so they have the ontology of physicalism. Space and time and its objects are fundamental. And the methodology of reductionism. That as we go to smaller scales in space, we find more fundamental laws in nature. And those two assumptions, of, you know, the ontology of space-time being fundamental, the method, methodology of, of reductionism, have been spectacularly successful for several centuries, at least since Newton. But we now know that, that they're doomed, and it's because of gravity. As we go to smaller and smaller scales, at some point, um, you, as you try to measure smaller aspects of, of, of space and time, you eventually can't. You, when you get to 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, space-time doesn't even make sense anymore. And if you try to probe by getting more and more energy to look at smaller and smaller scales, you actually look at larger and larger scales. So, so be, it's a fact that because of gravity, reductionism is false. We don't live in a reductionist universe. And it's false that physical objects like the brain exist when they're not perceived. So, so this is a lot to grasp. My colleagues in the neurosciences are still in the old ontology that space-time is not doomed, that reductionism does work. And but they're missing that in the last two or three decades, physicists have gone beyond that. Space-time is doomed. Local realism is false. Non-contextual realism is false. This is now not debatable. Well, and I'm sorry, reductionism Don. is dead. I'm sorry, Don. I am definitely going to have to ask you for those references because I can, I can feel my listeners itching, saying, show me the proof, show me the papers that prove this. And, and I shall certainly be coming to, trying to get hold of them to speak with them because this is really important. It, it feels to me like this kind of thinking can't be applied to science without a change in scientific paradigm. They do come along every now and then, a, a, a change of scientific paradigm. The, the word's thrown around an awful lot these days. Do you think that a post-materialist, post-reductionalist science can't emerge within mainstream science without such a shift in perspective? It feels like 
we're fighting against a, a, an extraordinary tide here without a complete change in, in sort of the consensus. Well, we're already seeing the most brilliant physicists at the, the forefront of the field that have let go of reductionism and are going beyond it. So Nimar Akhani Hamed, right, is very, very clear that reductionism is dead. So that's literally, I think, a quote from him. Reductionism is dead. And, but he's, he's already showing how you do physics when you don't have space and time, when physical objects are not fundamental, when you don't even have quantum field theory, right? You, you, so, so you don't have quantum theory, you have to go, some, you have to go deeper. You have to get space-time and quantum theory arising from something deeper. So scientific explanation is still a perfectly valid approach. It's just not a reductionist explanation. It's a different kind of thing. You, you, reductionism says as you go to smaller scales in space and time, you get more fundamental laws. Well, it turned out that worked for a few orders of magnitude, but it doesn't work for more than you know, 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. Then all of a sudden it doesn't work anymore. And we, we, so that reductionist framework does not work after a certain amount. It, we were lucky it worked for a while. It worked for, you know, a theory of temperature, right? As the mean molecular kinetic energy of molecules. So it worked. Reductionism worked there, but it doesn't work at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. And, and by the way, that's not very far deep. 10 to the minus 33. I would be more impressed if it was 10 to the minus 33 trillion centimeters, but 10 to the minus 33. Space time doesn't go very far before it just gives up. It's, it's, it's not that deep of a structure. Sounds so, a little bit sounds a little bit like the limits of a program, doesn't it? That, that that each computer program has its its own set of rules. That's right, and that's one approach that some people have taken is to say, well, it's really just a computation, and this is a computer simulation. Um, that's not my view, but but it is. Uh, Wolfram and others um, are saying that it's just a simulation. Yeah. How does yours differ from simulation theory? Listeners, by the way, do go back to David Chalmers' episode 16, where we look at the simulation hypothesis in detail, and we talk all about virtual reality and the ethics of virtual reality as well. I mean, it, people might throw your theory in with simulation hypotheses. What, what, how is it different, though? So most simulation theorists will say that <clears throat> there's some computer program that's being run, that, you know, that some kid you know, at a lower level of reality wrote, and we're just players, you know, our whole world that we're perceiving right now is just a simulation that this, this player wrote. And that, that person, that programmer might themselves just be a simulation at a deeper level. And so there are all these different levels. They typically assume that the bottom level is a physical level. So typically they're physicalists. So the simulation hypothesis basically says it doesn't typically let go of space and time and physical objects. Right? They, they assume that at some base level there's a space, time, and physical objects. Um, so that's one difference. So I'm, I'm saying, no, space time is doomed all the way down. At the bottom level, there's no space time. So there's no computer in that space time simulating and so forth. So that, that's one difference. A set, another difference is this. <clears throat> In that physicalist framework, they're saying that my consciousness is a result of a computer simulation. So somehow a computer program executing some code can create consciousness. And I think that that's also false. I think that it, it's all attempts by my good colleagues and friends so far to show how any physical system, computational or otherwise, 
uh, a physical system that doesn't have consciousness to begin with can somehow create a consciousness um, have utterly failed. There's not, I'll put it this way, there's not a single scientific theory to date that starts with brain activity or integrated information, some kind of physical computational system that has sort of integrated information that can explain one, even one specific conscious experience, like the taste of chocolate or the feeling of a headache or whatever it might be. They say, you know, consciousness is a particular kind of integrated information or it's a global workspace or it's orchestrated collapse of uh, neuronal microtubule states and so forth. Great. So give me one. What is the orchestrated collapse of microtubules that is the taste of chocolate? I mean, we, I, we're trying to do science here. What specific, specific conscious experience have you found that is the orchestrated collapse? And why does it have to be that orchestrated collapse is the taste of chocolate? Why is it impossible for that to be the taste of vanilla? But There's this, not a single one on the table. But this so, leads us to a panpsychist position, Don. I mean, inevitably, if consciousness is fundamental, if the physical world is emerging out of uh, some sort of base consciousness, uh, but you're not a traditional panpsychist. What's, where, where do you differ from that philosophical position? And again, I have very good friends who are panpsychists, you know, Jeff Goff and um, uh, Annika Harris and so forth. These are brilliant, brilliant colleagues. Um, but the panpsychist is fundamentally a physicalist. Space and time and fundamental particles, you know, like electrons and protons, are the fundamental nature of reality. But in addition, they have, you know, the electron has an addition to its spin and charge and so forth. It also has a unit of consciousness. So they're not, they're not taking seriously what the physicists are telling us, that space-time is doomed. We, we really have to understand that space-time is doomed. Physical objects do not exist when they're not perceived. An electron does not exist and have a position and a spin when it's not observed, and therefore it doesn't have a unit of consciousness either. If it doesn't exist, then it doesn't have a unit of consciousness with it. An electron is like the red Camaro that I mentioned in the VR game of Grand Theft Auto. When I look over to my right and I see the red Camaro, it exists because it, it, I create it as a conscious experience. It's a structure in my consciousness, uh, you know, it, it's an experience in consciousness. When I look away, that experience, my, our garbage collector, I throw it away. It no longer exists. So it's not like I say, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that that Camaro has any real existence and properties like a, a bit of consciousness um, when I don't perceive it because the current isn't even there. So space-time and, and, and particles aren't even there when they're not perceived. So, so the whole foundation of that kind of panpsychism is, is just undercut by modern physics that says space-time is doomed. Those particles don't exist when they're not perceived. Now, this brings us, Don, to the maths, um, something that you mentioned before is very very important for you is to have a working theory and in scientific theories we need a mathematical basis for those to be to be able to make proper predictions so tell me how on earth do you assign mathematical values to conscious agents and what predictions have you been able to make with those equations great question we could maybe get an idea about what's going on here if you just think about what we had to do when we got a mathematical theory of space. So if I just ask you, okay, 
see the space around you. You can move your hands through space and so forth. Um, I would like you to give me a mathematical model of space. You might go, well, how do you assign numbers to point, you know, to space? What, what are you going to do? You do sort of like, you, you probably like, oh, can I do that? And, and what would be the point? Would I learn anything by putting numbers to, to space? And which is probably why we, we for, for thousands of years, people didn't do it. And it wasn't until, you know, very recently, the last 300 years, that we started actually putting numbers to space using mathematics. And we, and we, we have first, like, the Newtonian space, which was an absolute space, an absolute time where it's the same for everybody. The time is universal and so forth. And we found out that that was an interesting model. We could make predictions with it. And then we found that that model predict, predicted its own demise, that it, that it wasn't wasn't going to be, you know, it, it wasn't the final answer. And then we got Einstein's theory. And so it was a different way of putting numbers to space and time than, than, than Newton gave. And, and so, so just to give you a feel that, that we have these mathematical models of space and time, but when you think about it, how did you first start to get a mathematical model of space and time? How did you put numbers to space and time? That, that's not trivial. And so we have the same problem, but it's not any more difficult when we deal with consciousness. We're, we're going to say, okay, what do you do? Well, you just start somewhere. You say, let me try this mathematical structure, and you write it down. And, and I'll, I'll say right up front, of course I'm probably wrong. That you know, Someone as bright as Newton was wrong, right? And, and now space-time is not, you know, space-time is doomed. So Einstein's wrong. So, you know, that, that's just the way science goes. We, uh, there is no final theory of everything in science. And that's perhaps the most important thing I'll say all day. There is no final theory of everything in science. We will always be going after the next theory. And that's a principled aspect of how theories work. Right? We, every theory says, if you grant me these assumptions, then I'll explain these other things. But the assumptions aren't explained. The assumptions are assumptions. So you might get a deeper theory that explains those assumptions, but that deeper theory will have its own assumptions. And this is a necessary problem endemic to all scientific theories. They always have to make assumptions. So you have a theory of everything except your assumptions, but those assumptions are everything. That's where all the beef is. And so, so we'll never have a theory of everything. And that is going to be part of the important conceptual framework in which I deal with, with consciousness and trying to get a mathematical theory of consciousness. The idea that perhaps the, the entity itself, the consciousness, will transcend any mathematical theory is going to be an important aspect of how I think about consciousness and the relationship of math- mathematics to the consciousness. So, so that's why when I write down, so I, the, the, the structure I wrote down is very, very simple. And we have a paper called Objects of Consciousness, if people want to see the math. If you just Google my name, Donald Hoffman, and Objects of Consciousness, you can see the paper. It's free online. You can see what we did. But at top level, the idea I said was this. <clears throat> consciousness, there's lots of things to talk about in consciousness. It's complicated. What are the minimal aspects of consciousness that I think I need to model that might allow me to boot up a theory of all of consciousness? That's sort of the scientific idea. What is the minimal set of assumptions that I need to make 
that might allow me to construct a general theory. That's that's the so the the minimal set that I proposed with my colleagues, Chaitan and Manish and Chris Fields and so forth, is that a conscious our conscious entity has experiences, a headache, for example, or a taste of chocolate or feeling of love and so forth. It takes actions based on those experiences, and its actions affect the conscious experiences of other conscious units, conscious agents. That was, I, that was the, I felt the minimum that I could have. Experiences that inform some kind of action, which then affects other experiences. So the mathematics then that I wrote down was to say, well, and this was again with Chaitan Prakash and my colleagues, is to say, okay, let's have a, a set of possible experiences that, that, that could happen. And so we write down what's called a probability space. So this is a probability. So by probability space, if I, I just say, for example, if I'm going to flip a coin twice, what could happen? Well, I could come up heads, heads. You'd come up heads, tails, tails, heads, tails, tails. So that's the probability space. Those four entities, plus all of their unions and intersections, are um, the set of possible outcomes of the experiment of flipping a coin, right? So you write down a probability space. Now, in the case of consciousness, it's a pretty big probability space. What, what is the space of all possible conscious experiences? Does that even make sense? See, already we're facing some very interesting mathematical questions. What does it mean to talk about the space of all possible conscious experiences? Does that make sense? So we can talk about finite spaces of conscious experience. I can say, okay, here's an agent that only has a finite set of conscious experiences. So that's, I can talk about that agent. And I can then talk about um, other agents with finite set of experiences. And I can talk about how, if this agent has certain experiences, how it might influence the experiences of other agents. And that, that influence is written down in a mathematics that we call a Markovian kernel. So, so what we have are probability spaces and Markovian kernels. And it turns out you can, it's trivial to prove that, you know, if you have a network of interacting agents that are affecting each other by Markovian kernels, that that system is computationally universal. And what that means is anything that can be computed could be computed by that set of agents. So in other words, we know that we have the power within this formal framework to do anything that's computable. But beyond, it, 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 it can go beyond computable because the, the sets that are in your probability spaces need not be computable sets. You can have what are non-recursively enumerable sets, you know, you know, as part of your, as events in your probability space. So it, it goes beyond computation in, in principle. And it also leaves open this idea of um, there could be an, a never-ending space of conscious experiences. That, that we have to, and this, this is an important aspect of it, because this has, gets down to something that is called Gödel's incompleteness theorem. So a guy named Gödel in 1930-1931, when he was just a young guy, 25-26 years old, proved that if you have a mathematical system 
that is at least complex enough to capture the truths of arithmetic, right? Then he showed that he could write down a statement that was true, but not provable within that mathematical system. It was an unprovable truth. It's true, but not provable within that mathematical system. If you think of that mathematical system as a theory, it's, it's saying this is something that is absolutely true. It's compatible with your, your theory. It's true, but you cannot prove it from within your theory. Now, if you take that and you add it to your theory, add it to your axioms, to your assumptions, then Gödel's theorem comes back and says, well, here's another one. Now with, now with your new axiom system, I'll give you another truth. That's, that's not, so in other words, this is a scientific theory with a finite set of axioms can never capture all truth. There will always, so the notion of truth is deeper than the notion of proof. And it's deeper than the notion of theory. Now, so what Gödel is also telling us is that there's no end to the exploration of mathematical structure. No end in principle. There's no finite axiomatization. So, no, so our attempt as scientists and as theorists to understand consciousness, to write down theories, is provably a job with infinite job security. We have infinite job security. You never come to the end of it. Now, that is a really interesting statement about this deeper reality. If I'm taking this deeper reality to be consciousness. So right now, consciousness is just a term. I have intuitions, you know, like my feeling of love, my feeling of hate, my feeling of just being without content, right? Just raw awareness without content. These are the kinds of things I can point to, right? And and I, I just have to assume that you understand what I'm saying because I assume that you're also conscious. Just like when I talk about space and time, like, you know, if, you, if, you've, if you're blind and you've never seen the color red, good luck me trying to explain to you what the color red is. I mean, if I can point to a red rose and say, that's what I mean by red, then you'll get it. But if you're blind, good luck. I, I, I don't know how to tell you what red is. Um, so, so in the case of consciousness, if consciousness is all there is, then mathematical structure is only, the only thing you can be about is consciousness. So, and why, so what, what is consciousness then about? So one of the deep questions you have to ask yourself, when you have a theory of, in which consciousness is fundamental, you, you ask, well, what is consciousness doing and why? And the deep answer is, I don't know. But the only answer that I've seen so far that is deep enough to at least be interesting does come from Gödel's incompleteness theorem. And, and it basically says that there, if, if consciousness is all there is and there's an infinite amount of mathematical structure, endless mathematical structure to explore. That means that there's an endless variety of possibilities of consciousness for consciousness to explore. And it's in principle never ending. And that, that therefore, maybe that's what consciousness is up to. Consciousness is 
about the endless exploration of the possibilities and the varieties of consciousness. And that's what consciousness is doing. And from that point of view, what you and I are, are just different projections of consciousness into virtual worlds that consciousness is making up to explore. And so here we are in this space-time universe, which seems vast, right? The, the nearest star is several light years away, and the nearest galaxy is millions of light years away. That's the nearest galaxy. And the visible universe is billions of light years across. And it has hundreds of billions, maybe trillions of galaxies. So there's this this mind-boggling framework that we're in, the space and time. The varieties of this and what we're learning as, as conscious entities is as vast as this is, this is nothing. This is just one of countless things that consciousness can come up with. In other words, we consciousness explores all these different things. It allows itself to get lost in them, to completely immerse into them. And then it wakes up and it says, I'm not just a physical body. I'm not just neurons. I'm not just space and time. I am that which creates space and time. I am that which transcends space and time. And consciousness wakes up. And then it moves on and does something different. And, and this is never ending. That consciousness is, in some sense, exploring all of its possibilities, but, but exploring them seriously. It allows itself to get lost to lose its, its self-understanding in, in the exploration, and then to slowly wake up to, to realize, oh, no, I'm not that. I'm not just my body. I'm not just a brain. I'm not just space and time. I am that. It's, it's like some ancient scriptures from um, India, the, the Upanishads say, not that which the eye sees, but that whereby the eye can see. Don, this Not is, you know, I was just about to mention the Upanishads because it sounded so similar what you were saying there. And these are certainly very, very compelling and mystical traditions from across the world, completely unconnected mystical traditions have, have spoken in similar terms for many, many centuries. But Don, I've got to pull you back to the question yeah. about predictions because you're so... Mm -hmm. You're so set, and rightly so, on the fact that we need a clear uh, scientific theory if we're going to get anywhere at trying to bring the scientific community right. towards these kind of precepts. So you did bang out some, some equations, and presumably you were able to make some predictions. What kind of predictions were you able to make? Well, so... We have a mathematical model that, that, that people can simulate and, and explore from themselves. The, to make physical predictions that, do, that are going to really take the scientific community and make them take, take this seriously is going to take some effort. Now, let me tell you how I think we're, we're, we're going after this. Um, the idea that I'm pursuing is that if we look at the dynamics of conscious agents, you can look at the so-called long-term behavior, what they call the asymptotic behavior of conscious agents. It's a Marconi dynamics, but you can look at it as asymptotics. And 
the, the pursuit that we're doing right now is I'm looking at that asymptotics. I'm trying to show how that asymptotic dynamics can plug into the kinds of structures that the physicists are finding beyond space-time, like the cosmological polytope, the amplitudehedron, and so forth. They then show how those structures project into space-time. So, so the idea, so to make a theory of consciousness give predictions in space and time that can be testable, like at the Large Hadron Collider, we would have this dynamics of conscious agents. We'll look at its asymptotic behavior, so that how the asymptotic behavior projects into structures like the cosmological polytope, the amplitudehedron. Those then project into space-time, so we get this long thread from conscious agents all the way back into to space-time. So you've got a kind of stepping stone in the mathematics of these colleagues that you've been referring to, which we are definitely, Don, you must send me these links because it sounds so central to everything we're talking about, uh, yeah. just to the papers of, of those physicists. Now, I want right. to stay with maths, as I know that you're a huge fan. I know that you absolutely adore mathematics. Yeah. It's, it's a very, for me, it's a very useful bridge between the measurable of the hard sciences and the purely conceptual. Now, us philosophers get somewhat ridiculed by hard scientists for sort of flailing about and thinking about unverifiable whys. But theoretical physicists are daily uh, inventing conceptual mathematical structures outside of the constrictions of space-time to, to, to sort of venture sort of deeper hidden realities. You mentioned Hilbert space is a good example. For an outsider, um, the proposing of these conceptual mathematical dimensions seems almost as, as much of a mental construct as any of the concepts from the social sciences, for example. And yet, because it's math, we sort of venerate it as high science as we do with the hard sciences and, and the funding flows. And don't get me wrong, listeners too, you know, I love maths and I think it's a very important bridge uh, in bringing these, you know, frankly, paradigm-busting ideas that we can, perm can permit us to push beyond these, the, the, I think, the sort of wall that we've reached with these deep physicalist assumptions. Do you, like Galileo, believe that the great book of nature is written in mathematical language? And perhaps more sort of controversially, is everything maths? Great, great question. So I'll talk about mathematics at, at two different levels here. First, just as a pragmatic tool, right? So as you pointed out, the religious traditions or spiritual traditions like the Upanishads and others have, have talked about these ideas that I'm talking about, but they've been talking about them for thousands of years, actually. But the, the so they had deep insights from my point of view. I think that they were onto something. That the problem is when you just use spoken language, it's a fairly crude tool for actually taking your insights and making them precise and figuring out what they imply. That's where mathematics comes in. And that's where, again, I think science and spirituality can really help each other. And in some sense, if this theory of conscious agents is on track and the ideas that I'm pursuing are very much like various spiritual traditions, the Upanishads, Buddhists, and <clears throat> even mystical Christianity and Sufism and so forth, there may be some very, very deep connections. And, and even though these traditions have talked about them for thousands of years, they haven't had the precision of mathematics to actually take their ideas and turn them into really precise ideas that you can then test 
and refine and so forth. So, so just as a pragmatic tool, um, it helps us to take our ideas, make them mathematically precise so we can see what they entail and see where um, we didn't think things out. Often when we write down a scientific theory, we realize, oh, I didn't think about this and the mathematics is forcing me to write something down. What do I think about that? And so, so the mathematics um, really forces you to spell everything out as much as possible. And then it tells you what, so like when Einstein wrote down his theory of general relativity, the theory of gravity, it took him several years of hard work. He had the idea that if you're in an elevator that's falling, you'll be weightless. That was his big idea. If I'm in an elevator and, it, and it's in free fall and I was standing on a scale, in you know, a weighing scale in the elevator, it would weigh zero. I would weigh zero in that. That was the big idea. But it took Einstein several years of hard work and learning mathematics and, 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 and so forth before he finally wrote down the equations of general relativity in 1915. Right, so it's one thing to have the intuition that I'd be weightless in an elevator. You know, that's I mean, that's the heart of the theory in some sense. But turning that into precise mathematics took several years. Now, when he wrote it down, the theory is in in some sense smarter than the author, the person who writes it down. A year after Einstein published his theory, um, a guy named Schwarzschild was playing with the equations while he was on the front lines of World War I. <laughs> so, wow. Wow. <laughs> and he discovered that Einstein's equations predicted what we now call black holes. Einstein didn't know that. Einstein didn't like it. And he, for, for many, many years, disbelieved in black holes. The theory came back and taught Einstein. His own theory came back and taught him. So that's the power, the pragmatic power of mathematics. Without going into anything deeper about mathematics, we use mathematics because it's a way to take our ideas and make them precise, and then to become the students of our own theories. And so that's what I love to see, by the way, in, in spiritual traditions, is I think they have many, many deep insights. They're at the point, like Einstein was, when he realized that if he was an elevator, he'd be weightless. A falling elevator, he'd be weightless. Great insight. But now let's do the hard work of turning that into mathematics so that we can be surprised and actually have our ideas teach us. So that's one, one reason why we do mathematics. And that would be enough. Even that by itself would be, be enough. But I think that mathematics is very deep. I mean, when we have Gödel's incompleteness theorem, the implications, telling us that, the implications that, that, of that are just massive, aren't they? They're, they're absolutely massive, and they're, they're, they're massive for what they mean about who am I? Who is this Gödel that is able to take a mathematical system and understand that there's this new statement that's not provable within the system? Clearly, Gödel was not within the system. Because by definition, if he, were, if he only had the computational resources in that system, he proved that he, could, he wouldn't have come with the statement. He wouldn't be able to prove it from within that. Somehow, he got outside that system. So, so this then, you might say, well, that, that just means that he was inside of a bigger system, but he didn't get outside. I don't know. I don't know. Are we... 
Does Gödel's incompleteness theorem entail that whatever we are is not computational? It transcends computation. In other words, there's no finite set of axioms or assumptions or starting points and a finite set of rules of transition that will ever be able to explain everything that we are and everything that we know and understand. Well, it's, In other words, the computational universe isn't true. And various spiritual traditions have, have said this, that, <clears throat> that you are that which allows perception to occur. You are that which allows thinking to occur. You're not the thought. You're not the particular perception. You're that which makes thinking possible. You're that which makes perception possible. What is that deeper thing? But it, it also means you, um, you are only finite in, in terms of those restrictions. The deeper reality, according to this, this mathematician's rule, is, is that it is, it is infinite and it is bound, it is constricted by perception. And, and otherwise it would be completely infinite by the sound of it. Right. It, it, it seems to indicate that there's this unbounded intelligence that our scientific theories, as I said earlier, this was the most important thing I said, was that our theories will never be a theory of everything. And, and this is one reason why. Yeah. That, that, which doesn't mean that it's pointless to have these theories. They're, they're, they're good pointers. Even if you look at the spiritual traditions, right? There's the, the famous saying by, um, uh, it'll come to me who, who said it, but the language of God is silence. All else is poor translation. <laughs> Rumi. Rumi. Again, he's just got so many, hasn't he? Yeah, that, that, and, that, and that's wonderful. And, and one attitude you could have to that is to say, okay, well, um, someone who says that and, and being consistent says nothing further, I'd have great respect. But, but in fact, the spiritual traditions don't stop. They, they say lots of other things, right? Dogma. So, so then my attitude is, well, why, why do they say things and the other things? They say, well, we're giving you pointers, right? The, the, the truth transcends anything that we're saying, but, but we can give you pointers. And, and the pointers can be helpful in understanding and waking up to who you are. Well, science can give us even more precise pointers. And mathematics, the mathematical approach may give us precise pointers. So, so I would still like to pursue scientific theories, even though I say there's no theory of everything in principle. Nevertheless, scientific theories can give us great pointers and they have practical applications too. And Newton, for all the limits of Newtonian physics, changed our world and raised our standard of living. And quantum theory raised it even higher, even though we're now saying that quantum theory isn't fundamental, space-time is doomed, and quantum theory is not fundamental. Nevertheless, it gave us deep pointers and deep insights that are allowing you and me to have this conversation right now, you know, thousands of miles apart, uh, using technology that came out of it. So, so again, that's more, sort of a more practical side of, of 
why I think mathematics is important. It, 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 it may only give us pointers, but they're very useful pointers. And my attitude about mathematics and consciousness is not that mathematics is the only thing or, or even the most fundamental thing. I think of it more as like the consciousness is the living being and mathematics is like the bones of that living being. But, but it's an important aspect of that living creature in, in the sense that the mathematics itself is a way that the consciousness is using to understand itself. So here I am, now I'm going to adopt my framework full on. Here I am, consciousness, using mathematics with my colleagues to try to understand myself more deeply. And waking up, right? my aha experience came from looking at some mathematics. So this, this puts mathematics and my conscious being in this non-trivial, very interesting relationship. I'm, the mathematics is telling me something important about my structure. It's telling me that it's boundless, that there's no end to the possible structures for me to explore. It's providing tools that allow me to wake up to different aspects of myself it's a bridge to know what I'm, it's I'm a part. bridge it's a bridge in that sense it, it it's it's a bridge and so it may be a clue to a deeper understanding of what consciousness is and what it's up to right consciousness in some we've talked about it that it's it's not a final static thing it seems to be always endlessly exploring in principle exploring and always waking up Consciousness is always learning, and, and yet it's timeless. So, so to understand how that might be, um, and I'll just say again, using mathematics, how I'm trying to understand how that might be. Um, one can have a dynamics, the Markovian dynamics of consciousness that is what they call stationary. The, the, the entropy does not increase. As the dynamics proceeds, the entropy remains constant. And so in that sense, there is no time. Time in space, when we talk about time in, in physics, we think of it as, as, as really tied to entropy, the entropic time. Um, and the second law, so-called second law of thermodynamics, in some sense, we can almost define time as the increase in entropy. Mm. You know, and in, in physicalist frameworks, you know, there was this low entropy beginning to the universe at the, at the Big Bang, and then things start to get more and more entropic. They, 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 they wear down. <clears throat> well, so we can have a theory of consciousness in which there's no entropic time, but it's trivial to prove that if you take that Markovian dynamics and look at it from any perspective by so-called conditional probabilities, if you... So you can imagine a conscious agent uh, sort of stepping out and looking at the whole from, from a particular perspective. You can prove, in that case, the entropy from that perspective will increase. So you're looking at a whole that is non-entropic in the sense the entropy is not increasing. But when you look at it from any perspective, then you get entropy. An increasing, so you get the illusion of time from any... But time then becomes an artifact 
of looking at the whole from a perspective. So is space. So space and time are artifacts of looking at the whole from a perspective. And we might be able to show that if you take a number of these different perspectives and look at how the entropy changes, the rate of entropy changes in each of those, and how the distortion of space changes, you might get back the Lorentz transformation and the Poincaré invariance and so forth. In other words, we might be able to show how some of the, the important symmetries of modern physics are really properties of the different perspectives that consciousness can take on itself. But even but the deep consciousness itself is timeless in this sense of no increasing entropy. Hmm. Um, one thing I really don't understand, well, a lot of things I don't understand, but one, one thing that really bothers me is the infinite exploration that seems possible here. How do I wrap my head around that? And, and can I wrap my head around it? Um, it, it seems like Gödel is telling us that this thing is in principle never ending. And so there's this deep sense in which the fundamental being that I am from this point of view will forever transcend any theory. And I can never know it in the intellectual sense of knowing. I can only know it by being it. And, th and this may be the, the new way that we really have to think about doing our science is that we go into this being where we are this transcendent intelligence. And then we come out of it with insights that we can put into mathematics and, and scientific theories and get deeper and deeper pointers. But that process of self-knowing through deeper and deeper pointers is in principle never ending. So, so at some point, we're faced with the ultimate mystery, which is ourself, and yet I am myself. So I can't, I can't get the final story of myself, but I can be myself. Hmm. And I can be in that self and then come up with deeper stories, never ending with deeper stories. And that's the job security of science. And, and, and also what we should be doing, I think, in a scientific spirituality. Spirituality has gone into the deep insights, but it hasn't had the language to take those insights out and turn them into things that we can actually realize that our concepts were wrong, right? We, we want to be disabused of where we're wrong, where, where, where we're deeply wrong. Hmm. All of our theories are limited, but some of our, our theories are not just limited, they're just nonsense, they're wrong, right? So we want to avoid the nonsense. Um, and so I would like to see that in, this, in the spirituality, this precision that comes where we can actually make progress in understanding, being, at least getting better pointers into, into being. But it's interesting to me, hearing your bones analogy there, um, it reminds me of uh, physicist Max Tegmark in his radical take on the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, believes that everything in existence follows a mathematical structure. So not, not so far from your point of view. How could such a similar assumption lead to a many worlds physicalist view and you to, to a, a virtual reality point of view, for want of a better word? Right. So, so Max is a, a, a brilliant physicist, and he has this idea that <clears throat> there are these different levels of the multiverse, and this, the, his level four multiverse is this, Pure this idea that, that everything that's mathematically possible is, in fact, real. 
So this goes beyond just the quantum superpositions and so forth. This is anything that's mathematically possible is in fact actual. And the, but the way he puts it is that the, the mathematics is the fundamental reality, not the particular entities, the concepts and so forth that we might have about them. I kind of agree with him, just not not the real bit. <laughs> right. It's it's so so you can see my point of view is very very different. When I was saying that 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 consciousness or being is is the ultimate living organic reality, and mathematics is the bones of it. And so there's this very. I mean, you 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 can't live without your bones. It's you. you it's intimately related to them. I think that many physicists and many scientists, we, we, we have assumed that space and time and, and matter are fundamental. And that really has been so successful that, that, we, that we, it's hard for us to think out of this. When we see all these possibilities of mathematics, we're still thinking in terms of other, like, conscious less physical universes that, that have all these different structures. There's no like five dimensions of space instead of four or, or, you know, a different kind of topology than we could ever imagine here or, you know, all these different things, but, but they would all be these non-personal, non-conscious universes out there. And so many of my colleagues and many of them, good friends of mine and, or, or colleagues will say that consciousness is an illusion. Right, so I had a good conversation with Keith Frankish a couple of years ago. Where there was a video with Keith and me talking about this, where, where Keith thinks that, along with Dan Dennett and many others, that 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 consciousness and conscious experiences are are simply an illusion. There's nothing but um, neural activity or physical systems and their and their their processes, and some of those processes just give rise to the illusion of conscious experiences, and so. Uh, I'm not sure that, that Max would say that consciousness is, is an illusion, but but I think that many physicists thinking about what he's saying would would take that a point of view that that there is this impersonal, non-conscious multiverse, level four multiverse with all these anything mathematically possible is real, um, but it's it's real in a very different sense that I'm saying that that, that there's this being that that. The best words we can use to point to it are things like awareness and consciousness, not words like space and time, um, not not impersonal things. Right. And now, I think that's a pretty good separation. Thanks, Don. Now, another computer analogy um, works against this traditional emergence hypothesis of consciousness, one that, that's become termed as downward causation. Now, this is the work of South African physicist George Ellis, and he says that this is, that this is an argument for dualism, that, that consciousness couldn't merely have emerged out of matter. He, he uses the analogy of higher-order software downwardly causing changes in the hardware of a computer, something that actually we see the same bidirectionality between, between our bodies and our brains. Can this idea of downward causation, or does downward causation, point us towards your consciousness-first assumption? It, it could. I, I think that the framework that I've been working on with conscious agents um, has 
causation at all levels in some sense. Intercausation, we might say. Intercausation, that's right. So downward, upward, the, the whole bit. So in the models that we're, we're building, um, when agents interact, they form also con- conscious agents at a higher level, but those conscious agents themselves have their own autonomous choices that they make, which then have a downward causation effect on the agents in what we call their instantiation. Now, <clears throat> looking at George Ellis's work, um, he, he doesn't go into this full big conscious agent theory that I'm talking about at all, right? He, he's, he's far more circumspect in that. And so if we try to take his arguments, he uses arguments, for example, if I write some software and I compile it, I, I'm writing things at a very high level, but eventually it gets compiled down to something that's changing the state of electrons and circuits and in a computer and, and so forth. And and he wants to say that, that these computer programs and, and compiling them and getting things that run on a, on a real physical system is another example of downward causation. Now, I think the way that most scientists will react to that claim is will depend on what ontology they bring to, to it. So if I am a physicalist and a reductionist, then I will disagree with, with George, right? I, I will say, look, the software and the compiler and so forth, um, the fact that you have multiple instantiations, I have a piece of code at this level, I could be instantiated in hardware in very various ways. That I think I think many of my physicalist colleagues would be unmoved. They would say the was, they would say that the possibility of that happening was dependent on the lower level. On the in lower the first level, that, that, that's right. So so it's if you buy if you keep buying into the physicalist ontology and, and reductionism, then I, I think that they would have arguments against George and wouldn't wouldn't be compelled. Also, when, when, when George talks about, you know, the issue about choice, I mean, if you have something where um, there, there's conditions, that if this happens, then I'll do that, otherwise I'll do that. He wants to argue that that also su- suggests that there, you know, there's this top-down um, causality. And again, it, I think... Does that, it move you, Don? This, does this idea move you, this higher-order consciousness question? Uh, well, well, I think the higher level of causation thing is is an intimate part of the whole framework that, that I'm I'm working on. So 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 yes, there's this the, to the extent that the notion of causation even applies, there'd be top down as well as 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 as, as bottom up. But in, in George's case, I'll just mention one technical thing and that is that um, if I were a physicalist, and and this is the kind of thing he's gonna he's gonna have to deal with in terms of people critiquing, I'm sure he does. And and that is that we can build quantum computers with, for example, a controlled knot gate. There's something called a controlled knot, which it's a reversible gate. It's it's so it's it's a unitary gate, um, and you can write it down as a four by four matrix. It's a permutation matrix, and it, it allows you to, you know, I flip this bit only if the first bit is one. Otherwise, if the first bit is zero, I don't flip the second bit. So it's it's a complete conditional probability kind of thing. It's a unitary operator. It's reversible and so forth. So, so again, I, I'm not saying I disagree with George. I'm just saying that if, for, for if you try to propose his downward causation in a physicalist 
reductionist framework, or, or forget the reductionist, just a physicalist framework, then I think that he's going to get endless pushback, and, and it probably won't fly. Hmm. Um, if you let does, go of space-time, go ahead, he, then, then this is a different story. If you say space-time is doomed, there's something deeper, uh, and you let go of the reductionism, and you realize that in a world with gravity, reductionism is false. Now, now we're we're getting where George wants to go, which is to say, okay, this top down, this the the, the bottom up causation, which is assuming the reductionist framework, right? I start with the lowest level elements and build up everything from that. Well, there are no lowest level elements. That's there is the reductionism is false. So, so I, I empathize with what George is trying to do, um, but I think that there are perhaps better ways to persuade people. Mm. Space time is doomed. Reductionism is provably false. What? How do you have bottom-up causation in that kind of framework? <laughs> Absolutely. But but something that this reveals is this problem with the problem of con- uh, the, the part of this problem of consciousness seems to be the need to establish that one is primary to the other. No, this idea that 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 that. Uh, space-time emerges out of consciousness or or that consciousness has over time emerged out of uh, matter and space-time. I, f- I feel like part of the problem here is trying to work out which comes first, the primacy. But I'm not sure how comfortable you would feel based on what you've just described with this, this old Buddhist idea that consciousness and space-time co-arise. It sort of sometimes, in a way, sort of feels like um, like that it would solve the problem but in some sense, actually, what you've been saying, it's almost irrelevant. How comfortable are you with that idea? Well, I think that that idea is pointing to something that's very deep and needs to be really seriously studied scientifically. I, I would change it from the, the Buddhist statement that you just gave um, a little bit in the sense that the, the, if you say that consciousness and space-time co-arise, that would be just one example of a much deeper co-arising of consciousness and all other kinds of forms of experiences that may not be in our kind of space-time at all. They might be experiences that are not spatial-temporal. There might be something entirely different. Um, so, it's not going far enough, right? There, the, 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 there's the, Gödel's infinite variety of possibilities pops up here, and so space-time is one out of countless. But, but the idea that this deep being of consciousness that transcends any particular theory, of course, can be it can be itself, but it can only know itself by trying on all these different frameworks and playing in those frameworks, and then saying, "I am not that. I that was fun, that was interesting. I learned a lot, but I transcend even that." Is that in that sense, they they are in some sense the being and the manifestation manifestations that it chooses are are intrinsically and intimately linked. linked. And even though the being transcends any particular manifestation, nevertheless, the manifestations are are and and then transcending the manifestations is in an central aspect of what the being is and, and how it is knowing itself. And, and if that's the case, then 
the progression of scientific theories where we go, you know, here's Newton, wonderful. Whoa, whoops, no, now here's Einstein, wonderful. Whoop, whoop, now we need to go beyond it. Now here's, you know, quantum field theory. Oh, now space-time was doomed, so now we find the amplitude hedron on the cosmological polytope. And then we have this theory of conscious agents. Well, even that's not good enough, so we, we have to go beyond the theory of conscious agents. That, that progression of, of science, which is why I said this is the most important thing I was going to say the whole time, there is no final theory of everything in science. That may be the deepest thing that we can say about consciousness, that it will forever be exploring and saying, oh, that's much more deep and beautiful, and yet I transcend that. Oh, that's even more deep and beautiful, and yet I transcend that. In some sense, the only way to know yourself is to know what you're not. And maybe that's part of it, but, but that, that's uh, above my pay grade right now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's important for us to to consider these options, isn't it? So just to close, Don, thank you so much for your generosity with your time. I want to come back for a moment to the computer analogy, um, which, of course, is related to our computer era. And I always have fun trying to imagine how the analogy for a certain time changes over the eras, you know, the old... Uh, classic example in the industrial revolution was that everything was a machine now i mean we we've kind of moved on from that into the computer area um i always feel like the current language and technology is often interesting that it's the technology rather than the theory because often we have the technology before we have the theory that kind of define the way we're thinking about things mm -hmm. What analogies have cultures over the centuries had for this same idea? We touched on the Upanishads. And maybe even more fun and difficult to imagine, but we haven't been shy of doing that the last hour or so. What analogies might we use in the future? Well, I think the one that's going to be on us very, very soon is the, the metaverse and virtual reality. I think... The, the kind of thing that I've been saying that, you know, when I look at the moon, I create the moon when I look and I destroy it when I look away, which most people go, nonsense, how could you possibly say that? And, and I mean, my brilliant colleagues, that people I love, will say that kind of thing to me. It's nonsense. Of course, the train is there. It'll kill you if you don't you know, step out of it and so forth. So clearly it exists even when it's not perceived. I, I think that the next generation that spends a lot of time in the metaverse. And, and they just know that everything that they see, they're creating on the fly and destroying in the metaverse. It's going to be a no-brainer that when they take off their headset and, and look around this world, they're going to go, why should this be any different? Of course I create the moon when I look, and of course I delete it when I look away. It, 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 they'll probably look back on our generation and, and, and wonder why we were so hard so dumb not to get this. They'll probably just look back and it'll just be obvious. But even further, so, Don, push further beyond. Maybe hmm. when we get into a, 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 an idea of consciousness being uh, the, the fundamental nature of reality, this word being you mentioned there, I wonder hmm. if this idea of being, maybe even being alive, couldn't somehow end up being the future analogy. I wonder if there isn't something in there about being or life. Well, yes, I, I, that would be a, a, a very, very deep leap. I mean, 
we might go there in, in the following in the following way. If it is true that you know space time isn't fundamental, the consciousness is fundamental, and so your body is not fundamental. Is you, you are not your body. You, Avatar. You, you are not a pack of neurons, like as, as Francis said. You you are. You're you're you are instead a consciousness that uses what we call this body as a portal, right? So in some sense, I can see Freddy only because I have this portal, which I call the body of Freddy. And you can see Don because you have this portal that you call the body of Don. And, and so we have, the, <laughs> we have these portals whereby consciousness interacts with consciousness. And we have one technology that we know of for creating new portals, and that's having kids. Right? Every time you have a kid, you open up a new portal into this realm of consciousness. So we know that there are technologies. So what, what may happen is that we will discover as we take this seriously, we may find new technologies for opening up new portals into consciousness. And, and so there may be that, once we get that technology, so this is trying to get at your question, you know, because I'm trying to, what, as you said, there's technologies that often give us our new metaphors. So the only technology I can imagine right now that might give us new metaphors is once we figure out the technology for opening up at will new portals into consciousness, that new technology may then give us a deeper insight into how we want to think about consciousness. Because now consciousness is the thing that opens up these portals that, that creates the interfaces and then opens up portals into them. So, that new technology, and by the way, the, the, the technology should allow us, since space-time is just a, a data structure, we, don't have to go th- we won't have to go through space-time to Proxima Centauri. We can go around space-time to Proxima Centauri. So we don't have to worry about Einstein's speed limit of the, spa- you know, the, the, uh, the speed of light. The speed limit won't apply to us because we're not in the game anymore. We can step outside of that, the space-time game and just pop ourselves into, and maybe not even with wormholes. I mean, that, that's still sort of in the space-time technology. We may be able to just completely transcend even the notion of wormholes and, and go around with new technology. So that kind of technology could could really leapfrog beyond like a metaverse kind of um, metaphor. Um, so that's that's as far as, as my limited brain can can go at this point. And, but oh, but I, I should say, in principle, your question is exactly right, that there should be no limit in principle to the sequence of metaphors that will be more and more profound. Mm. Well, Don, you certainly have not held back at all in uh, <laughs> showing us how unlimited your imagination and your ability to conceptualize these things has been. And, and I just, on behalf of all the listeners, thank you so much for being so open about your extraordinary free association and your ability to imagine these things, and that you're not, like so many university uh, professors, you're not afraid to talk about it. And I just think that is the most extraordinary thing, to allow one's um, curiosity and, and one's philosophy to keep open and to stay searching, to allow that to be right at the forefront, even in a, in a highly competitive professional field, I just find one of the most honorable things around. So, Don, on behalf of all the listeners, thank you so much for giving us such a lot of your time 
and um, I look forward very, very much to seeing where your work goes. And uh, we shall certainly be linking all of these extraordinary bits of research in the show notes, listeners. Thank you so much, Freddie. It's been a great pleasure. And thank you again for the wonderful questions that you've asked and the pursuit that you're doing. I, I really appreciate it. 